Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I explore American writers using the Library of America as my source material. Each episode is an examination of about 100 pages of text, and I provide my commentary with some historical context and my feelings about each work as I go through them. In this episode, we'll be continuing our examination of Frank Norris's masterpiece, The Octopus. For those of you just joining us, I suggest you go to the previous episodes to get caught up to speed. But generally, the novel explores the fate of wheat ranchers in the San Joaquin Valley at the turn of the last century. Sorry, there was some construction in the background. I had thought it stopped, but we'll see how this goes. Um, yeah, this novel is about the wheat ranchers of the San Joaquin Valley at the turn of the last century. It's really focusing on their struggle with the railroads, the titular octopus with many tentacles going in many different directions. And that's really clear by the end of the novel. When we left off, the ranchers who had been squatting on railroad land tried to stop the seizure of their farms, but a short skirmish left most of the leadership dead, including my favorite character from the novel, Buck Annixter. The final three chapters of this novel is mostly cleanup for Norris, examining the fate of the characters and really setting out his final themes and final thoughts uh, of the work. Uh, from a plot point of view, the novel is largely done with the defeat of the Ranchers League, but there's really a lot of meaning in the last few chapters. Um, they are, however, very hard to get through, and, and some of them are really brutal. Uh, in fact, chapter 8 is one of the hardest chapters I've ever read in American literature. The political aspect of the struggle is largely done. Okay, chapter 7, book 2. Yeah, The octopus is broken up into two books. The first book has six chapters, the second has nine, so this is chapter seven of book two. It opens up with an overview of the surviving members of the community. They're all kind of in a makeshift hospital in one of the ranches, and they're counting who's dead, they're, they're seeing who's wounded, and the condition of the people who are, who are wounded. There's an accounting of the dead. And the center of this part of the chapter is Presley. Presley is the novel's representation of art, and art's impact on... I guess, politics and economy. I mean, that's a kind of overriding theme. When you start the novel, you sort of think Presley is the moral center or going to be the hero of the novel. But his continued failure, his continued inability to actually affect any change makes it clear that art is not going to save the day. So he kind of summarizes the situation. And he writes it down. He doesn't talk about it. He writes it down because, as we'll see, he's preparing a speech. Here's what he writes. Dabney dead, Hooven dead, Heron dead, Annixter dead, Broderson dead, Osterman dying, Esperman alive, successful. The railroad in possession of the Kiansabe. I saw them shot. Not 12 hours since, I stood there at the irrigation ditch. Ah, that terrible moan of horror and confusion. Powder smoke, flashing pistol barrels, blood stains, rearing horses, men staggering to their death. Christian in a horrible position, one rigid leg high in the air, across the saddle. Broderson falling sideways into the ditch, Osterman lying himself down, his head in his arms as if tired, t tired out. These things I have seen them. The picture of my day's work is from henceforth part of my mind, part of me. They have done it. S. Behrman and the owners of the railroad have done it, while all the world looked on, while the people of these United States looked on. Oh, come now and try your theories upon us, us of the ranchos, us who have suffered, us who know. Oh, talk to us about the rights of capital. Talk to us of the trust. Talk to us of the equilibrium between the classes. Try your ingenious ideas upon us. We know. 
we cannot tell whether or not your theories are excellent. I do not know if your theories are plausible. I do not know if how practical is your scheme of society. I do not know if the railroad has a right to our lands, but I do know that Heron is dead, that Annexter is dead, that Broadison is dead, that Hooven is dead, that Osterman is dying, and that S. Behrman is alive, successful, triumphant. Okay, um, this is actually a bit kind of interesting because he's condemning the theoretical approach, and Presley's always trying to get at the populace, the people's point of view of these problems. However, he never quite gets there, I think, and this will be shown later on in the chapter. It's really nice language, but we'll see that this type of rhetoric might be effective to readers, it might be effective to supporters, but it's not really providing any solutions. So that night, there's an emergency meeting of the Ranchers League, and all the people get together. Uh, the previous meetings of the League we've seen in this book have been meetings of like the executive committee, and they've been plotting kind of openly. Here we get kind of the full meeting, and we get the full picture of the San Joaquin Valley's ranchers. They need to discuss what to do next and find out who is to blame for the disaster on the Los Muertos ranchos. One of the ranchers, he was a guy who was on the sidelines before this, stands up to lead the meeting. He is named Garnett. He blames the current president, Magnus Derrick. And again, Magnus Derrick is our symbol of kind of the feudal lord, the, the big landowner, the moral, uh, the believer in moral righteousness. Uh, he blames him for mobilizing before the League militia was ready. There were supposed to be 600 men who could be mobilized, but only nine people showed up, and it was a disaster. And he says the reason you do that, he did this is because he wanted to defend his ranch from seizure, not really thinking of the ranchers in the San Joaquin broadly. The result of this is that um, they lost any chance to hold off land seizures before the Supreme Court would rule on the ownership of the ranches. During this post-mortem, news comes to, that, to them that one of the wounded from the battle has died. It's Mr. Osterman. With this, Presley stands up and gives this epic, epic speech. It's, he imagines the speech to be Shakespearean in reach. He throws in dozens of historical allusions. He uses this over-the-top over rhetoric, and he uses a lot of pathos, all in an effort to kind of get the ranchers to act. Um, just how they will act what is the strategy here? What is actually to be done is not at all clear in Presley's speech. And this is the problem here. Presley is clueless. He's desperate. He's tried what he can do. He's tried writing poems. He's tried, uh, well, he tries the speech. What else has he really tried? Uh, I mean, he tries being sympathetic to the ranchers, but he's never part of them. He's not one of the ranchers. He's just kind of a hanger around in the community. Anyways, but if we read some of this speech, we can get a sense of what Presley is like. This is America. We fought Lexington to free ourselves. We fought Gettysburg to free others. Yet the yoke remains. We have only shifted it to the other shoulder. We talk of liberty. Oh, the farce of it. Oh, the folly of it. We tell ourselves and teach our children that we have achieved liberty, that we no longer need to fight for it. Why, the fight is just beginning, and so long as our conception of liberty remains, as it is today, it will continue. For we conceive of liberty in the statues we rise to her as a beautiful woman, crowned victorious in bright armor, in white robes, a light upon her uplifted hand, a serene, calm, conquering goddess. Oh, the farce of it! Oh, the folly of it! Liberty is not a crowned goddess, beautiful in spotless garments, victorious supreme. Liberty is a man in the street, a terrible figure, rushing through the powder smoke, fouled with the mud and ardor of the gutter, bloody, rampant, brutal, yelling curses in one hand, a smoking rifle in the other, a blazing torch. 
freedom is not given to the free, to any who would ask. Liberty is not born of the gods. She is the child of the people. And, okay, that ends a bit of the quote. This goes on for like three pages, though. Um, yeah, you know, who doesn't agree with this rhetoric? But there's no solution here. And the, and, the, and the league's on their back. So they need something more than what Presley can offer. So when he hears the response, which is kind of polite clapping, Presley's embarrassed. He realizes yet another failure of his art. Poetry has failed, both the populist and the socialistic, and now rhetoric has failed. So up next to the stage is Magnus Derrick, and he at the, he's almost immediately booed off the stage and declared to be a, a briber. It turns out that the newspaper, the Bonneville Mercury, which is the railroad newspaper, revealed all the details about his bribery of political campaigns that helped to get rancher supporters in the right positions in the government. This was something that was kept from most of the league by the leadership. The leadership knew this was going on. It wasn't kept to the, it wasn't known to the broad membership. And earlier in an earlier chapter, uh, the editor, the writer for the Bonneville Mercury approached Magnus and solicited a bribe to keep this knowledge away from the general public. Magnus is defeated utterly. He can't respond to this. He's a, just mumbling and, and mumbling over his words. He has really nothing to say. All his moral authority is gone and Magnus is defeated. The chapter ends with a bomb being exploded in S. Behrman's house. Now, Behrman is the railroad's main agent and a symbol of its power. The inability of the bomb to kill him is just one more suggestion of how resistance is impossible. Behrman cannot be killed. In fact, it was Presley who threw the bomb. We don't learn about that later, but it doesn't really matter if I tell you now. Um, Presley threw the bomb, but doesn't hurt him. It destroys his house, but it Burnham himself escapes. So this is important because nothing could defeat him. Earlier, uh, the disgruntled farmer and railroad engineer Dyke actually shot point-blank range at Behrman and the gun misfired. So Norris is picking up this theme here that resistance, violent resistance, isn't going to work against the railroad. Okay, chapter 8, book 2. Now, this chapter focuses mostly on the fate of the Hoovens. The Hoovens are a character that's kind of in a backdrop. Uh, Hooven was a German immigrant. He was a, uh, a tenant on Magnus Derrick's ranch. He has two daughters, um, Minna and Hilda. Uh, Hilda's quite young, like two or three, and he's got his wife, Mrs. Hooven. Um, Hooven and Mrs. Hooven speak kind of this broken, heavily accented uh, English, so... Um, it shows that they're recent immigrants. In this chapter, Frank Norris rips your heart out really without mercy. Now, he hasn't built up these characters very much, but we know of them. And we know, and they're kind of a symbol of, of the residual harm done by the railroad here. So, yeah, we see what's done with the ranchers directly. But some of the ranchers, like Annixter, had money. I mean, they could have survived their farms being just destroyed. Um, others had education and reputation. People like the Hoovens have nothing but the land they worked as tenants and the, 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 the tradition. In fact, one of the first scenes is Hooven worried that he's going to lose his lease um, in, in the next season. So the Hoovens become just a symbol for the residual damage uh, done by the railroad. It's really one of the hardest chapters to read in the entire book and one of the most depressing sections I've ever come across in American literature. We learn that the Supreme Court has finally decided on behalf of the railroad, so the ranchers are basically without any more recourse. They don't have any legal recourse anymore to get their land back. The league falls apart, and most of the smaller ranchers decide to save their skin by leasing land from the railroads. So they can still work the land, they can still harvest the crop, squeeze off maybe a living, probably heavily indebted, 
and then you just need to go and read about the cropland system and sharecropping and and tenant farming in America in the turn of the last century and know what fate of what's the fate of these people. They'll survive, but they will um, be basically proletarianized. We learned that others were um, harmed as well. The Hoovins, tenants on Derek's ranch, had to move to the city. Presley goes to the city to confront the bosses of the at the general office of the Pacific and Southwestern Railroad. So we get kind of our, our final confrontation, if you want to think of it that way. Presley still thinks of himself as perhaps the knight who can save the San Joaquin. In his last challenge, he walks into the lion's den. He walks into the general office of the railroad, seeing this as his final chance. Maybe intellectual argument. Maybe he can talk sense into the leaders. Maybe if maybe they just don't know the harm they're doing. Maybe, you know, whatever's going to do his head, he thinks a f- open confrontation will, will do good. At the very least, he can get an answer. And... In this, even, he's utterly defeated. He's expecting to see uh, perhaps a human being. And what the person tells him there is, is although I'm a human being, I, I'm not responsible. And it's a very important commentary on the corporation, I think. In fact, Shelgrim, who's the, he's presented as the archetypical bureaucrat. He's just part of the machine. He's the head of the company. He's head of the railroad. Um, but he's not a agent in his own way. He's just another bureaucrat. They, in fact, they discussed Presley's poem, and he talks about how much he liked Presley's poem, and he had some criticisms for it. But he's not, like, saying hostile to the poem. He, he sympathizes with it a little bit. The point is, art can't warm the heart of an institution, even if it warms the heart of a man. And Shelgrim here provides the thesis of the book. Presley asks him outright, like, you're the boss. You're the leader. Why, can't it, why couldn't you have made a decision that would have saved the ranchers of the San Joaquin? And this is what he says. You are a very young man. Control the road? Can I stop it? I can go into bankruptcy if you like. But otherwise, if I run my business as a business proposition, I can do nothing. I cannot control it. It is a force born out of certain conditions. And I, no man, can can stop it or control it. Can you, Mr. Derrick, or can your Mr. Derrick stop the wheat growing? He can burn his crop, or he can give it away, or he can sell it for a cent a bushel, just as I could go into bankruptcy. But otherwise, his wheat must grow. Can anyone stop the wheat? Well, no one can stop the road. So we've got two unstoppable forces here. Nature and the wheat and the railroad. So that's the thesis. These, these are unstoppable forces. This is the core idea of naturalism, that the individual is under overwhelmed by the institution and by external scientific or, or sociological forces. We next shift to the story of Minna Hooven. She misplaces her mothers and young sisters in the city, and she's forced to find a job and survive with just a few cents in her pocket. I think she has like 15 cents. She tries to take various jobs. She burns through a lot of her money using the tram to get to places across the bay. They're in San Francisco. Um, So she's trying to get to there. Like at one point she goes up to Berkeley or something to try to get a job, and she uses most of her money that way. But she's turned away from all the domestic service jobs she can get. Um, she's eventually pretty despondent, but she's taken in by a woman who proves to be a, a madam, and Minna becomes a prostitute. It's not really clear at the moment where she meets this woman that that's what's happening, but later on when we meet, when Presley meets Minna on the street, Minna confesses to him that she's become a prostitute. So she at least has a future. It's certainly not um, what she wants. Minna's presented throughout the book as a as a good girl who would have been horrified to be, at the idea of becoming a prostitute. But it seems she'll survive. 
um, but with the total loss of her virtue. The story of Mrs. Hooven, though, is even harder to witness. She is just thrown out of her room that she was renting. They, they just had whatever savings they had, and she couldn't get a job. She, she didn't really know how to get a job. When she runs out of money, she gets kicked out of the room she's leasing. At first, she's even too proud to beg, and there's little she, there's little she can do. She has broken English. She really has no idea how to find a job. She doesn't really have any skills, that, at least none that Norris wants to let us know of. Eventually, she gives in and begins begging. She finds that people would give her money from time to time, and she starts to beg. Um, she can't really make enough from begging, and her situation gets worse and worse. The Hoovens, Mrs. Hooven, and little Hilda just wander the streets. Hilda is the toddler, and she's constantly begging for food from her mother throughout the chapter. She doesn't understand money. She doesn't understand why they don't have food. She just understands not having food. So there's this constant, every few lines, there's this begging from Hilda, and it's really hard to read. And one day, Mrs. Hooven dies of exhaustion and starvation. Hilda is taken in by some people, and we don't know Hilda's fate. We presume she'll just be torn through the system. Um, you know, they're... It's the progressive era, so I suppose there may have been some emerging institutions for orphan girls, um, but that's Hilda's fate. Just, um, but we can read like this scene just to get a sense of it. Um, and it yeah, it's it's brutal, as I said. At ten o'clock, Miss Hooven fell. Luckily, she was leading Hilda by the hand at that time, and the little girl was not hurt. In vain had Mrs. Hooven hour after hour walked the street. After a while, she no longer made any attempts to beg. Nobody was stirring, nor did she even attempt to hunt for food with the stray dogs and cats. She had made up her mind to return to the park in order to sit upon the benches there. But she had mistaken the direction, and following up Sacramento Street, had come out at length not upon the hill, but upon a great vacant lot at the very top of Clay Street Hill. The ground was unfenced and rose above her to form a cap of the hill, all overgrown with bushes and a few stunted live oaks. It was in trying to cross this piece of ground that she fell, and she got up to her feet again. Ah, Mommy, did you hurt yourself? asked Hilda. No, no. Is that house where we get the bread and milk? Hilda pointed to a single rambling building just visible in the night that stood isolated on the summit of the hill in the grove of trees. No, no, there ain't no bread and milk, little doctor. Hilda once more began to sob. Ah, Mommy, please, please, I want it. I'm hungry. A jambled nerve snapped at last under attention, and Mrs. Hooven, suddenly shaking Hilda, roughly cried out, Stop, stop! Do not say and get you. My goat, you kill me yet. But quick upon this came a reaction. His mo her mother caught her little arm to her, sneaking down on her knees, putting her arms around her, holding her close. No, no! Guy all so much as you want. Say that you are hungry. Say that again, and you will all de dine. Off the... Sorry, this is in... This dialect, which I have trouble reading sometimes. Um, I'll try again. Say a to poor starving little baby. Oh, my poor little doctor. My good. Oh, I go crazy very soon, I guess. I cannot help you. I cannot get you nothing to eat. Nothing, nothing. Hilda, we're going to die together. Put your arms around me. So tight, little baby. We're going to die. We're going to find popper. We ain't going to be hungry anymore. Where we go now? demanded Hilda. No places. Mama's so tired. We stop here, little one, and rest. So there's a little bit more. But eventually she passes out, and some other people find her and, and Hilda. Hilda's still alive, though. That's the end.
so this whole story, though, now this isn't enough. Uh, watching this very brutally and slow, it goes on for like 20 pages. It's not, it's not enough. He intertwines, Norris intertwines the story of Mrs. Hooven with that of Presley, who he's still an intellectual. He's still well known. He wrote this poem that everyone in the region has read. So he's invited to the home of the shipbuilder Cedarquisk. And they have a fabulous and very wasteful meal described in great detail along with the suffering of the Hoovens. So the, the waste and the, the, the beautiful food and the, the pomposity of the Cedarquist family is contrasted page for page with the suffering of the Hoovens. Now, I got, just got to say, I had really trouble reading this section. I had to go set it aside a couple of times. And never before have I screamed at a book to sort of get on with it, but I did here. So it's a really effective uh, section. So moving on to page 20, or th uh, sorry, not page, uh, chapter 9 of book 2. Now this chapter takes us back to the ranches. We learn that Esperman has taken over Los Muertos and is preparing to harvested, the harvested wheat for export to Asia, which was the previously stated plan of Cedarquist, who thought the future for the ranchers was in the Asia market. Behrman talks to Presley, who is back there just to say his goodbyes and to leave the San Joaquin forever. Behrman asks Presley to work for him and confesses that he knows that Presley threw the bomb. And, and this is really interesting section too, because if Behrman is the symbol of the railroad, he confesses that he knows he's the target of violence and he, and he doesn't even care that much, that he doesn't take it personal. He's just doing his job. He's just part of the machine, um, like Cedar, like Shalgrim and others. Hilma Tree is there. Well, I guess Hilma Annixter is there, and, and that's Annixter's wife, and we get a good buy. I suppose we can assume she's a bit better off. Annixter had inherited a lot of money, and, and I guess Hilma will get that. She loses the land, she loses her farm, but I, I don't think she's in necessarily in bad shape. He says his goodbye to the Dykes. Now they, on the contrast, have no future, and we can imagine them ending up in the same fate as the Hoovens. Maybe even worse, because Mrs. Dyke is, is older. One of the last things Presley sees as he leaves the ranch for the last time is the private property sign put up declaring these lands the property of the PNSW Railroad. The last person he meets is Vanamy, giving Presley a restatement of the thesis of the novel, but from a more organic point of view. So this is essentially what Shelgrim had told Presley earlier in the, the previous chapter. Um, but here it's from Vanamy's point of view. Death and grief are little things. They are transcendent. Life must be before death and joy before grief. Else there are no such things as death or grief. These are only negatives. Life is positive. Death is only the absence of life, just as night is only the absence of day. And if this is so, there is no such thing as death. There is only life and the suppression of life. And we foolishly say is death. Suppression, I say not extinction. I do not say that life returns. Life never departs. Life simply is. For certain seasons, it is hidden in the dark. But is that death, extinction, annihilation? I take it, thank God that it is not. Does the grain of wheat hidden for certain seasons in the dark die? The grain we think is dead resumes again, but how? Not as one grain, but as 20. So all life. And he goes on on this theme for a little while. It's like a page and a half. So we get this um, organic perspective. Well, I had to stop there for a while. I'm, I've been suffering through this construction all day. Um, anyways, back to it. Uh, yeah, I think this the discussion with Vanamy ends Presley's character and kind of is 
the end of what Norris really wants to say here. So things are wrapping up quickly. There, there is an, an interesting final scene, which might seem kind of hokey to modern audiences. I'll just describe it, and then maybe we can talk about it a bit. The final scene of the novel is S. Behrman. He's preparing a ship, the Swanhilda, for departure with the wheat. It's going to go to the Asia market. I think it's set. it was set to relieve the Indian famine. He, at some point, he falls down into the ship's hold. And he's being drowned by the wheat, and this wheat is being poured into the ship, and he's, he, he can't get out. He's trying to escape, and he can't. He gets drowned by the wheat. So he's killed. He's, he dies. So S. Behrman dies. The point of this, it does seem kind of silly um, as a final scene. I can almost see how it would be filmed in movies, you know, with the la- his hand reaching out at the last moment trying to live as he's being surrounded by the wheat. But anyways, the point here is that Behrman cannot be killed except for the wheat. Behrman is our symbol for the railroad, our symbol of the institution. So resistance, organization, violence, corruption, rhetoric, art, moralism, even love, if you want to take Annixter and, and Hilma Tree's relationship. All that fails to defeat S. Behrman and achieve the goals of the ranchers. The only thing that's really going to finally suffocate the railroad is the wheat. So Shulgrim's point that the wheat grows on and on, the railroad keeps going, nothing can be stopped, either of them. Vaname makes a similar argument, but he says it's the wheat that keeps growing. It's the wheat that germinates again. It's the wheat that can't be stopped. And in this final scene, we get confirmation of that with the wheat's destruction of of Behrman. And, you know, if you look at, you know, I can't speak off the top of my head about the economics of, of rail transport, but global capitalism has moved on uh, without relying on rail as much as it used to. It's got the highways, it's got air, it's got uh, ships. I think most global ship, most global transportation is done by ship now. So in a way, the railroad is also eventually to be a casualty of this larger force, this larger organic force. The novel ends with a conclusion that reveals that Lyman Derrick, Magnus Derrick's son, becomes is going to become governor of California, most likely, in the upcoming election. And we get kind of an over a broad overview of the whole story. It's, it's like five or six pages. And it does kind of tie up things really nicely. Now, as we know, uh, Norris wrote a, a sequel to this novel called The Pit. Different characters, but it's still about wheat. It will focus on the grain elevator. It focuses on the grain elevator of Chicago and the futures markets and all that stuff. I haven't read that book. It's not in the Library of America collection of Norris's fiction. Um, it would have been the second, or it was the second of what would have been three books in the cycle of wheat. And he, he Norris died quite young, 32 or so, before he could finish that whole cycle. All right, so now's the time in the podcast where I talk about the themes. I talk about the themes of each work, and I, I reserve this section for the final, epi- final episode about each book. Um, and I just kind of list a bunch of themes, and you know, you know, I might have some more to say about each of these. Um, the first is just naturalism. Um, I think of all of Norris's books that we looked at, this is the best that really gets to heart the themes of naturalism, um, as he describes them. And as, you know, others in the first episode on the octopus, I I read the Wikipedia entry on naturalism. And I think this novel really fits that this idea that the individual is overwhelmed by these external, capricious, natural or institutional forces. 
Um, in many ways, you get a feeling when you read this that's that's much like the TV sh- the TV show The Wire or something, where all those characters are really just um, victims of forces bigger than themselves. And, and maybe we could call The Wire uh, an experiment in, in neo-naturalism or something. But Tied to that is the second theme, which I'm just going to call the institution versus the individual. And I am taking this from Emma Goldman, and I think believe the quote is, all of human history is the struggle between the individual and the institution. That's, I think it's something like that. Um, so when I see this theme come up in works, I'm going to mention it, the individual versus the institution. Obviously here the individual are the ranchers and the institution is the railroad or global capitalism. Which brings us to the third theme, capitalism. Um, obviously capitalism is at role here. Uh, the ranchers are capitalistic. They're trying to make a profit. Dyke is trying to make a profit. Everyone here is trying to either make a living or or make a profit. The ranchers are not, at least at the start of the novel, poor people. They are businessmen of the of their own. They're facing a much stronger and more organized and wealthier businessman in the form of the railroad, of course. So you have capitalism there. But a really interesting thing here, and it's something I think that makes Norris very prophetic in this novel, is this imagining of the transition from a national market to an international market. And this is where the, the, the figure of Cedarquist is so important to this novel. So the transition from just kind of national capitalism to global capitalism, or if you just want to think of global capitalism in general, and then the importance of transport in making that work. Net, you know, I, I know conservatives like to maybe talk about markets as natural. Um, trade is natural. I mean, maybe conservative is the wrong word, but free market types. They, they see the stuff as natural. They see, if you know, if you just don't have government inter- interference, you're going to have free markets. Well, perhaps, but it takes a lot of work to make those markets work, right? It takes building the railroad. It takes corruption. It takes manipulating government. It makes it means setting policy. It means organizing a lot of things. It means bureaucracies. It, it you know, the railroad here becomes a state in its own in its own way. So just the, the function of capitalism, and particularly global capitalism. Next, uh, just a theme of agriculture. Um, I don't have much more to say about it. Obviously, this is a novel about wheat and the production of wheat. And so agriculture is a big part of it. Um, he's at this point sees the farmer as a businessman. And uh, that's that. Other works will see farmers in different ways. But for now, we have the image of the farmer as as a capitalist as someone trying to make a profit as someone part of a market but this is contrasted with the character of anime who I, i'm going to put down as a a fifth theme the rule mystic the rule mystic anime is the first of rule mystic that we come across but there are going to be others particularly in steinbeck um i think in flannery o'connor you have characters that might fit that maybe the southern mystic is it Vaname is the rule is, is the rule mystic. He, through his connection to the land, has a special spiritual epiphany. His is of uh, the cycle of life, the circle of life, uh, and the permanence of of the wheat. Next, uh, the theme of the West. Norris wanted to write uh, the novel of the West. And in my next episode, I'll look at his essays. And one of his essays is about the necessity to write the epic of the West. He really tries to do that here, I think. He connects San Francisco with the valley. He's got multiple geographies, which is something he called for. He wanted it to be both urban. He wanted to get away from Wild West motifs that were flooding 
popular markets of, of literature in those days. And he achieved all that. So when I comment on that essay, you know, think about the octopus as a work that really does achieve kind of becoming the new novel of, of the West. Oh, there's the construction again. Great. Um, let's see if it's not too bad. Next, the corruption of democracy. Democracy as corruptible uh, as basically false. I'm sure you'll we'll see this obviously in Mark Twain. Um, you know, I just think how Americans understand democracy and how that conception changes and how it's criticized. In fact, both of the authors we looked at in this podcast so far, Melville and and Norris, have criticized democracy as essentially being uh, a corrupt or or not being able to achieve its its goals and its promises. Next, we have the theme of community and solidarity. And I think this matches or parallels the theme of the individual versus the institution. Um, you have the individual ranchers versus the institution, but their effort to struggle against it means they have to come together as a community. And some of the most beautiful and I think really precious moments of this book come when we see the community of ranchers coming together, living life together, doing things together, not just struggling together, but actually just living life, such as the barn raising dance I talked about in the second episode of the series or the the jackrabbit hunt, the jackrabbit kill. These are moments where the community has to work cooperatively and collectively to get its stuff done, to create value, uh, to get the harvest together. And I, I think they're very quite beautiful scenes and I think they're a really nice addition and I, I'm glad Norris put them in there and not, didn't just see it as, as in purely political terms. Another theme is immigration. Uh, Norris is particularly interested in immigration. Um, all of his works, well, Vandover and the Brute doesn't really have immigration, but it has this idea of the American-Europe connection. Uh, McTeague and the Octopus, both of these works have immigration as a theme, um, especially the, the neighborhood being shaped by these immigrant cultures. Our immigrants here are, are the Hoovens. And their fate of, of becoming Americans, their, their trajectory is they become Americans and then they're betrayed by the American institutions and the railroad and they, they, they're, they're killed for it or ruined for it. Next, uh, urban and rural versus rural life. That's a big theme here. You, you start reading this book and you think, well, this is going to be about the ranchers. This is going to be about the farm. But San Francisco is a heavy force in this book. It's the destination of some of our characters as they're forced to flee the ranches and make a living in a new setting. And the only place to go is the city. The city is the center of railroads, the railroad's power. The city is something that's very frightening for some of our characters. They don't want to go there. It's, it means for them a loss of, of something they can hold on to. Some characters, I think Annixter maybe even grew up in the city. He inherited money and he decided to go to the countryside. So I think one could go through this book and really play out the rule versus the urban tensions and the value of both. Uh, Lyman Derek is corrupted when he goes to the city and becomes a politician and a lawyer. Um, his son, his, or his, uh, Lyman's brother, uh, Heron Derek, stays in the farm and he stays kind of on the good side of things. And then the final theme I want to mention is just social mobility. Uh, here, the social mobility tends to be downward. I don't think any of our characters, except for people who are already rich at the beginning, like Esperman, end up better off at the end of the novel. Pretty much it's all downward social mobility. The Hoovens go from being tenant farmers to homeless. Um, many of our ranchers go from being semi-owners, or at least squatters, who have a hope of owning land in the near future, to becoming tenant farmers. The biggest default is probably Magnus Derek, who loses everything. 
And then you got those who died, of course. But I mean, of those who lived, you have pretty much all the characters have a downward mobility. The only exception might be Presley. We don't know his future, but he's got a lot of connections uh, and he's connected to the elite. I think Presley's fate is going to be he's going to forget about the San Joaquin. He's going to take on the roles in intellectual. He's going to be chummy with the rich. He's going to have more dinners with people like the Cedarquists. And he's going to become a conventional intellectual. Um, anyways, uh, I'll stop there. And since this construction has come back, I think we'll just end this episode and end my commentary on the octopus. Thank you so much for listening. If you have uh, ideas or thoughts about this book, if you read this book and you, you have opinions about it, please comment on the posts, share this, like it, do everything you can to help me get this podcast going. I would really appreciate it. Um, but for now, I'm going to move on. Um, I will see you in 100 pages. My next episode will be on some of Norris's nonfiction writing. And after that, we'll be moving on to the Harlem Renaissance. So I'm really looking forward to that.